Coming up on today's message with Pastor Johnny. I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, well, we need you to have on a suit and a tie. I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, we need you to have a good job. I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, well, who your mama and your daddy is first? How much money do you got? What kind of education do you got? They said, sir, I want to see Jesus. And Philip and Andrew did what the disciples were supposed to do and took them to Jesus. excellent is your name in all the earth. There truly is none like you, Lord God. Lord God, we ask that uh, you can hide me behind your cross. Uh, Allow every word that I speak, every thought that I think to be in line with your will so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about following the last sign. Following the last sign. Uh, When I was earning my master's in divinity at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, they had a rule that I thought was pretty silly. And this rule was that no matter what degree plan you were taking, even though they had satellite campuses uh, when I started uh, all across Texas and they eventually got rid of them, uh, but they had this rule that no matter where you started your degree plan, you had to take at least eight classes on campus in Dallas. And I might have banged my hand on the table a couple times asking why I needed to drive to Dallas to take these classes. And and, and some of the reasons that they would offer did not hold water with me. Uh, First, they were saying that it was the uh, Association of Theological Schools, the accreditation organization that was making up this rule. But I was like, there are a whole bunch of other seminaries out there with satellite locations that don't have this rule. Then they said, well, what it is is we want you all to be able to wrestle with the the academic rigor and and bond with your classmates. And I said, I don't bond with my classmates. I drive up to Dallas and I drive back. I don't spend time hanging out with them. I, I I, I developed a better relationship with those who I started with in the Houston-Galveston extension than those who were on campus. And the reason I wasn't, dry, I wasn't trying to hang out with them is because I still had a full-time job. I, I can walk you through a, two, a, 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 a Tuesday, uh, the last year and a half of me earning this master's degree in divinity. I would get up at 4 in the morning because I lived on the southwest side of Houston. I would then drive from the, I would get up at four in the morning so that I could get dressed and get out the house by 5 a.m. so that I could be in the woodlands at six to work my job as an AVIT service engineer at ExxonMobil in the woodlands. And I'd work there from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
Then I'd hop right on the uh, car, get in the car right after that. And from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., I was headed 45 north till I got to class. And I'd have to take a class at 6 p.m. in Dallas, Texas. Now, I would take that class from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then after I take that class from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., I hop back in my car to drive back to Houston to get to Houston about 1, possibly 2 in the morning. And I would stay in a hotel that was on the other side of the street from the exit sign uh, uh, for ExxonMobil, the, the, the Woodlands Spring, the Woodlands campus. And I'd stay in a hotel until about 5 or 6 o'clock there, and then I'd get up and go to uh, work the next day. I wasn't trying to sit around and talk about how mean the professor was or any of that kind of stuff. I had places to be. And so I did that for a year and a half. And when I would do that for a year and a half, my mother and my wife would take turns calling me while I was heading back, driving on those highways and byways in the middle of the night. And my mom would ask a question over and over again, what mile marker are you at? What exit are you at? What sign was it? She was calling to make sure that I wasn't falling asleep. And so she wanted me to follow the signs. She wanted to be, not only did she want me to follow the signs, but if she knew what sign I just passed, she had an understanding of where I was until I got to exit number 72. So you had to follow the signs. That loud amen was my mother, by the way. So you had to follow the signs, and I thought about following the signs every time I think about the gospel according to John, because the gospel according to John does not have miracles. Uh, You go back and read your Bible, anytime Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, any of those things, they would call them miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when they were in the gospel according to John, they were called signs. Why? Because signs point you in the right direction. And so we here are looking at one of the last signs that Jesus was about to offer to the people. Uh, In the text, we have, uh, it says in the text, now there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. And, And they gave this request, sir. They asked, uh, say, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then went to tell Jesus. And when they talk about these Greeks, we are not talking about Greek-speaking Jews in the Bible uh, or of the disciples. We are talking about actual Greeks that are outsiders. And, and Philip and Andrew are important to the text because they're the only two uh, disciples that are known by their Greek names. Uh, If you want to win souls for Christ, you are going to have to speak the language of some of those who are not in the clique. Uh, If you want to go out there and and win these souls for Christ, you can't just sit in a church and wait for them to come to you. And I find it strange that these people come to, to Philip and Andrew and say that they want to see Jesus and they take them to see Jesus. Can you imagine that? Somebody who wants to get to know Jesus that doesn't know Jesus already, asking somebody who already knows Jesus, can you take me to this Jesus? And they actually do it. 
I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, well, we need you to have on a suit and a tie. I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, we need you to have a good job. I don't see anywhere in the text where it says, well, who your mama and your daddy is first? How much money do you got? What kind of education do you got? They said, sir, I want to see Jesus. And Philip and Andrew did what the disciples were supposed to do and took them to Jesus. Didn't, uh, I'm, I'm going to step on some toes. What if this person would have smelled funny? What if this person would have been out on the street? What if this person would have been battling addiction? This person, these people who are outsiders, these Greeks that they are talking about are not believers in Jesus, but yet they say, I want to see Jesus, and the disciples didn't equivocate. They didn't try to stall or, or make them run through a bunch of tests or say that they don't fit the kind of mold of the type of people that we are looking for. They said, sir, we want to see Jesus, and they took him. Yes, sir. Ah, it didn't matter about money or education. They asked, these foreigners asked to see Jesus, and they took him. We ought to be able to want to take people to Jesus without any kind of equivocation or, or hesitation or, or waiting for another right time. We ought to be able to open. See, the problem is with this, this thing called Jesus and this thing that we call Christianity, people don't have a problem with Jesus. Nobody's got a problem with Jesus. All the things that Jesus said for us to love our neighbor, uh, love God with all our heart and all our mind and all our souls and to love our neighbor as ourselves. People don't have a problem with that. The problem they have is that the people that claim to be of the book don't follow the book. And so here you have Philip and Andrew. They, 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 They say this. And if we could be more like that, the church would be in a better shape. There's a reason why the Houston metropolitan area has over five or 6.3 million people in there and only 400,000 are attached to a church. The problem is not with our religion, but the problem is with the religious people. And so they say, sir, we want to see Jesus, and they obliged. I would submit to you that we ought to go and do likewise. Ah, yes. And so these people go to Jesus and Jesus says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Uh, Jesus recognizes what the hour is and he refers to it several times over the gospel according to John uh, before performing his first sign of turning water into wine in John chapter 2 around verse 4 when they run out of wine at the wedding at Cana. And, and, and Jesus' mother tells him that we need more wine. And the thing he says to him, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not come. Now, I would not advise anybody else to call their mother woman. But I'm just going to say right now that he's talking about the hour, the time. And then in John 7, Jesus is teaching at the temple. And people are amazed at how he is teaching. And they say, how does this man know letters having never studied? And Jesus told him that his doctrine is not his, but the one who sent him. Later on in the chapter, Jesus told them not not to judge according to appearance, but to judge with a righteous judgment. And those people tried to take him. They tried to put hands on him when he was telling these people what was going on. And he was telling these people about themselves. And right around John chapter 7 verse 30 it says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. 
And in John 8, there was another argument that Jesus was having with the Pharisees. And Jesus was talking about judging again and not judging according to the flesh. And defending himself as, as a witness and teaching in the temple. And then in 820, it says that Jesus, the words Jesus spoke in the treasury, treasury, sorry, as he taught in the temple, no one had laid hands on him because his hour had not come. Jesus was concerned about things happening in a proper time. He knew when his hour was going to come. And sometimes when we go through our day, these things in life, sometimes when we go through our trials and tribulations, sometimes when we don't get something that we thought we were supposed to get, maybe it's not our time. Maybe it's not. I'll use myself as an example. I go up for interviews up into, it's taken me over 10 years and I am still not ordained. I'm what you call a provisional elder. I'm in a probationary period. And if I don't mess up stuff too bad, May, 9th, May, uh, May of 2019, the bishop will put his hands on me and, and tell me to take authority and I'll be an elder in full connection. Amen. But sometimes Amen. things don't happen in their right time. Uh, the first step to get, becoming a Methodist elder, you got to get certified. It took me two times to get certified because it wasn't in my time. They said, we're going to take people on the 14th and the 21st. I said, I'll take the 21st. I called on the 20th to confirm my appointment. They said, oh, we moved everybody to the 14th. You must have missed the message. So I had to come back next year. And then we have this book of discipline that if I was just going to be real about it, some people hold more higher than the Bible in the United Methodist Church. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just adjusting. And, 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 and I got certified under the 2004 Book of Discipline, and you're supposed to answer some questions in that Book of Discipline. And I went, and it's broken up by paragraphs. And it's broken up, and they say, we need you to answer paragraphs 257 and 258 and, and, and go on and so on. And I answered those questions. Well, come to find out that we were already on the 2008 Book of Discipline. So they had moved the paragraphs around, and I answered the wrong questions. So I went in to get certified the second time around, but they said, you answered the wrong questions. We're going to have to see you next March. And then somebody else said, well, no, we meet in September sometimes. Why don't, since this was a, a typographical error, why don't we just go ahead and move him to September? Then I finally got certified, and I tried time after time to get a church. And things would happen. We have a hierarchy, a ranking system in the United Methodist Church. And so elders, those who are elders in full connection, get first dibs. And then those who are local licensed pastors have to stay off to the side. And after all the, 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 the big dogs get to eat, then the little dogs get to come up and eat. And so, and, and, and so these things happen, and then I finally got an appointment, and I got another appointment, and I say that to say that sometimes things don't happen in the right time, or sometimes things happen in God's time and not in our time. Because had it happened the way I thought, I may not be blessed to be here for such a time as this. I'm grateful for my appointment, and I'm grateful for every stop that happens. I'm grateful for every no. I'm grateful for every time I got to come back and try again, because that makes me appreciate it that much better. And so Jesus was talking about time, and he knew by the time we got to chapter 12 in the gospel according to John that it was his time. He knew what was going on, and he says that if anyone who loves their life. Or no, no, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel 
of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's talking about these seeds being a pattern of life and death. Uh, Fruit was a metaphor that was all over the gospel according to John. And it was a metaphor for life in the community because we are all seeds. Uh, uh, The enemy might have buried you, but they didn't realize that you were a seed. And the best thing that they could have done for you is bury you. You are going to have to be buried as well. Uh, And you are going to have to hate the life in this world to gain eternal life. I got some more Bible for that. Come on in, Paul. Right around Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer? Or do you not know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. We are going to have to be dead to some things if we want to make it in this Christian journey. It's going to require a serious commitment. It's kind of like breakfast, having bacon and eggs. Uh, uh, the chicken had some involvement in the breakfast, but the pig was fully committed. <laughs> when you put a seed in the ground, that seed is going to have to break in order for the fruit to come through. It's going to require commitment. One translation of this says you will have to let go of your life recklessly. Yeah. It's going to have some Commitment. What about eternal life? Jesus said that those who love their life will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Those things that we love, that we are attached to in this world, those who sometimes want to become rich and famous and powerful, Jesus knows that you cannot take all of those material goods and those worldly achievements into the grave. Those things will be lost. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever seen a funeral procession with a U-Haul behind the hearse. No, nobody? No, oh, oh, okay. Okay, just, just checking. Just checking. Well, we got we to gotta fixate on what really matters in life. A couple years ago, there was a baseball player by the name of Adam LaRoche walked away from a contract with the Chicago White Sox for $13 million. Why? Because he wanted to spend, he wanted his son to spend a lot of time with him and the team. And the management did not agree with that. So he announced his retirement on Twitter, thanking God for the game of baseball and ending with the hashtag family first. Several players responded commending LaRoche for standing up for his beliefs. One said, nothing like a father and son in the clubhouse. It's a family Thing. He, he was not concerned about the prestige and the fame that came along with being a professional baseball player. He realized that this game was taking away time from his son and with his family. And so he wanted to make out a way that he could not, uh, that he could not sacrifice his family and wanted to spend more time with his family. And when they said, you can't do that, he said, that's cool. I'll leave baseball alone and I'll choose my family. Because you won't be able to fit famous baseball player on a tombstone. Uh, The the White Sox will not be there to bury you when it's time to go. Those things that we think that are important now don't really matter. 
And so if he is willing to walk away from all that to, to, to take care of his family, what should we be willing to walk away from to take care of ours? Amen. The only things you do for Jesus Christ will last. Yes. I, I, I was trained in audio engineering, and so I, I spent a lot of time hanging around artists. And, and whenever I saw particular artists on TV, it baffled me about their behavior. Uh, I, I recall Russell Simmons, who sold Def Jam over and over again for hundreds of millions of dollars, walking into a studio uh, of, a, of, of a radio show. These people play radio songs for a living. And he asked them, what was the top ten songs from six months ago? What was the top ten songs from last year? They couldn't remember. These are people who are making money off of this. And they can't remember what you do for Christ will last. There was another article I was reading about a particular rapper. And, and I shouldn't even say it's a particular rapper because I've seen multiple rappers do this. Uh, they spend all of this time, and I am a product of hip-hop. I, I love listening to hip-hop music. I, full disclosure, I still got a bunch of Jay-Z songs in my phone. <laughs> but I look at these rappers making millions of dollars off of hip-hop music. And it's an art form. And I don't have, if you got a problem with hip hop, you should also have a problem with actors. But that's a sermon for another Sunday. It's an art form. But then they take their kids and put them in private schools. And don't let their kids listen to their own music. And they, they, they live these lives and they say, I'll rap about this so that you don't have to live it. They understand what's important. They understand that their family is important and they want to spend that time with family and they want to spend their time doing old things that matter. Only what you do for Christ will last. And so if all of these people cannot care about the things that we get worked up on, why are we getting worked on, worked up on it ourselves? Amen. Amen. Uh, and so these people heard what he said, and you got to lose your life. you got to be fully committed. You're going to have to die to yourself. And whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And he hears all of these things. The people hear all of these things, and, and there's a thundering word that is given, and, and a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there heard it and said, taught, said that it had thundered. And others said that an angel had spoken to him, him being Jesus. That's why Jesus said, the voice was not for your benefit. The voice was rather for your benefit, not mine. Isn't that like some church folk? To hear a good word and think about how it is better for somebody else. <laughs> Sometimes the word is right in front of us. And the word is right for us. And at this moment, the world is in crisis, and Jesus is telling us he's here with the remedy. And I like the Johannine approach to the cross, because the text says that Jesus does not run away from what he has to do. Uh, he says in the text that, that uh, his soul is troubled. But what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Uh, there's a song that explains it best where it says he would not come down from the cross. But he decided to die just to save us. 
And so he's not running away from this time. He understands that what he's got to do is in order to give us access and, uh, to heaven and get us away from death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus is walking into his purpose. And for his purpose, Jesus is letting us know that the last sign that he's going to have to give to us is going to be on the cross. And it is for this purpose, in this hour, he overcame suffering. It is for this purpose and for this hour that he overcame death. It is for this purpose and for this hour that he overcame evil. It is for this purpose that they did this. They hung him high, stretched him right, and you can draw all things. That's why he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I like the symbol of the cross. I like the symbol of the cross because it has a horizontal line. Now, so it has a, a vertical line and a horizontal line. And so it talks about how we as people need to be able to relate to the heavenlies. But then you got that horizontal line that lets us know uh, how we ought to be able to relate to each other. But I also like it because I remember this story and it asked the, the boy asked Jesus in this story, how much do you love me? And he said, I love you this much. And you understand that when I be lifted up and I can draw all men under me, when you have a wide grip, you can be able to accept all people. You can't embrace people closed up. When you are spread out, you can embrace all of these people. And so he lets us know that he is coming to his final exit sign. Now, there have been a bunch of people that have made some famous exits. Uh, Richard Nixon made a famous exit. Uh, I'm not a criminal. Uh, there, Lou Gehrig made a famous exit saying that he was the luckiest man alive, and then he quit baseball. Lou Gehrig, uh, Lou Gehrig did that. Elvis left the building. But Jesus had a more powerful exit than all of them. He had a habit of leaving during this short ministry of three years. He makes an appearance at the Jordan River and is baptized, and then he disappears for 40 days into the wilderness. All the times he would teach, he would make a quick exit from the crowds to get away and get on, on retreat. After he left the Last Supper, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And then he made a big exit. He died on the cross. And a few sympathizers took his body and put it in a tomb. He was dead and entombed, but he had a final exit there. Early on the third day. I said early on the third day. He got up with all power in his hands. He had made a final exit from the tomb. And because he made that exit, he had some more signs. He got lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross. Then he was lifted up out of the grave. Then he met with the disciples and got lifted up into heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come. Thank you for listening to this message. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you found this message. If this message blessed you, be a blessing to someone else and share it. Connect with Pastor Johnny on Instagram and Twitter, and be sure to like Faith UMC Dickinson on Facebook.